This week on the Push Pull Legs podcast, presented by Bear Bells, we have Dean Somerset as our guest. We talk about his past, his training, and his future projects. Three, two, one. We're in the same room, Dan. Hey guys, welcome to the Push Pull Legs podcast with myself, Dan Meek. And me, Tom Hall. And we have a very special guest with us. Without further ado, Mr. Dean Somerset from Canada. What's going on, Dean? Gents, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully, Lighty's been treating you guys well. Yeah, absolutely freezing, as always. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we can say that. He's from Canada, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right. So what is it there? Like zero degrees? Um, five. Pretty much about five degrees. What is it over in Canada right now? Well, on Tuesday I woke up, it was minus 20. Okay, cool. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you win. <laughs> yeah, you win. That's fine. Dan, it's all relative. <laughs> well, yeah, but, um, my girlfriend's Norwegian, and I still think that minus degrees in London is worse than minus, de- well, whatever, minus 10 over in Norway. Already, yeah, it, obviously, it's very humidity. So uh, when when you get that London fog that starts to get to below freezing, it tends to seep into your bones a little bit more. Absolutely, yeah, mm. I'd agree. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but, yeah um, basically, we, we we brought Dean on as uh, basically we tr- we tried to court him a little bit by saying how wonderful he is um, uh, before bringing him on. Um, <laughs> and both myself, I'm sure in previous podcasts, both myself and Dan have said that we've been to uh, one of Dean's seminars when he, it must have been about three to four years ago when Dean came over to the facility that we were working at, um, at the third space and you, you uh, basically did your first, was it the first ever one of your hip and shoulder blueprint? If it wasn't the first, it was one of the first. So yeah. it was uh, well within the first couple of times that Tony and I taught that specific workshop. We actually just wrapped it up in Boston yeah. uh, about two weeks ago. We taught our last one of that series, and we're actually looking at setting up a new seminar series. So hopefully we'll be back to third space to teach another one. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe maybe I'll have something to do with that in the future, but we'll, we'll see what's going on there. That'd be cool. Um, yeah, so I would basically, for the people who don't know who you are, Dean, who are you, essentially? <laughs> well, I'm just a dude on the blog, really. I'm a personal trainer, exercise physiologist in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which means six months out of the year I'm inside because it's too cold to be outside. Uh, I work with a lot of medical populations, so people that have had uh, joint replacements or spinal surgeries or they've had really complex medical stuff or pelvic floor dysfunction. And then I also work at the other end of the spectrum with some elite athletes who've gone on to like the Paralympics, the Olympics, uh, who are pro athletes. So kind of everyone in between. But most of the people I work with are kind of the not, I guess you could say, textbook example of what you would do with a client or who a client would normally be. They've got a little bit more special concerns and uh, they need a little bit more of a creative thought process as how to train them. But a lot of the time it's just me trying to get people jacked and swollen, but uh, trying not to break them at the same time. Outside of that, I've got a website and... I've written for a whole bunch of publications, put out a whole bunch of different uh, continuing education video series, traveled around most of the world teaching workshops to other trainers like yourselves, trying to make the industry a better place and get people better results. Pretty cool, yeah. Well, like I said, we've seen you live, so that was obviously an absolute treat for us, um, seeing someone who is so tall 
um, be so good at mobility was something, it was a sight to behold. It's something you just don't ever see. And obviously we train people and the amount of times I've heard someone go, oh yeah, but I'm just too big. I can't be mobile. And I'm just like, oh, well, I went to see this guy once and he did this. <laughs> so you're always the example I use to give people when it's, uh, when they kind of say they can't do something um, because obviously we've, we've kind of seen it in person. Um, just interestingly on that, in terms of your scope of what you do in terms of educating and also then your client based work, if you had to choose one to do, which one would you prefer to do for the rest of your life? Um, well, I like working with people, obviously. That's kind of the main reason why I'm in training. But at the same time, from an experience standpoint, being able to travel gives you a really cool opportunity to see a lot of the world and also just see what people do differently. I mean, if I'm stuck in my same geography and working with 20 or 30 or 40 clients, I'm very much limited to that specific uh, geography and ideology of who I'm working with. Whereas if I go somewhere like Norway or Prague or South Carolina or Florida or California or Australia, I get to see an entire different range of people. It was really cool when Tony and I were over in um, uh, Norway, we were teaching a workshop and the funny thing was we were trying to get people to do things like different squat patterns and pistol squats and whatnot and everyone could do them perfectly. It was absolutely <laughs> And then we went and taught a workshop in London and not too many people can pistol squat in London for some reason. Same thing goes in North America. It's a very difficult type of movement to do and a lot of that comes down to your anthropometrics. So if you have limb lengths that are very not accustomed to being able to squat on one leg and maintain balance, it becomes a really challenging thing. Like you can't avoid the geometry of it, but at the same time, that means you're good at something else. So it's really cool to be able to see the spread of population around the world and what people are great at doing, what people are kind of struggling with and who really adapts to certain types of training programs well. It was also really cool when we were in Prague in an Eastern Bloc country, I guess former Eastern Bloc country, talking about different training parameters and North Americans and I'm guessing parts of uh, Europe are still kind of enamored with the, the Russian strength or the Soviet strength style of training people. We chat with them and they're like, yeah, no, no, no. It's like the Western guys know what they're doing. The Eastern guys have no idea. So it was really cool to see that separation between it's like we're looking at them and idolizing their strength elements of things and they're looking at us idolizing our strength elements of things. It's that exact grass is always greener on the other side concept but just related to getting jacked and swole. It was pretty awesome to see that. That is awesome. I've never really thought about the whole, I guess, going from different country to country to see what people can actually uh, thrive at or maybe what people suck at. Um, I know, generally speaking, I would say a lot of the trainers I work with suck mobility-wise and are far more concerned about what they look like in the mirror, like Dan. Um, but <laughs> we've had this uh, discussion over the last couple of weeks as well, right? Yeah, and you won't let it lie. Will I, will, I won't let it lie. All right, Dean, um, just to set like discussion, um, what would you rather train, a movement or a muscle group? I know what Dean's going to say. Well, it depends on the goal of the individual, right? Like if it they're does. looking to be a bodybuilder, you got to train the muscle to look a certain way. If you're training somebody who wants to you know, pick, pick up the grandkids or move a sled or climb a mountain or anything like that, it doesn't matter what muscle they're using. It matters what they do with that muscle. So yeah. at that point, it becomes more of how do you execute the skill of the movement to be able to get the best result possible. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a place to be able to say, yeah, you need to train your bicep brachii and you need to get that really big and strong and powerful and whatnot. But then it's a matter of, okay, well, if they're looking to do something with that bicep, what are you using it for? And I definitely involve isolation training with some of my clients, especially after a lot of our strength stuff. But then it just comes down to what are you actually doing with it? I mean, for somebody like me, I like to lift heavy stuff. I like to deadlift pretty decent amounts of weight for you know, like the general population. For someone my size, I'm about 17 stone, so 
it's not something where it's easy for me to say, you know, body weight to weight that I lift ratio. I'd have to be like 800 pounds to be impressive. I'm not even <laughs> that. But even then, I still want to be able to like, I don't know, walk around with my dogs in the neighborhood, bike to work once in a while, do the splits on occasion. So that kind of stuff is as important or more important than training my glutes or my hamstrings. So I still want to be able to deadlift, but I still also want to be able to do everything else around that. Yeah, that pretty much is the textbook answer. That's, that's we what, we did say you, you we said you were gonna say it depends on on goal and do the classy thing and not be like uh, no, it's this, this, which this. is what we would both do as well. Like, <laughs> we, we were playing the scenario if you had to pick one, like it wasn't a case if you could yeah. do the, the 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 right thing, which is it depends and depend on the goal. Yeah. We literally went if you had to do one, what would you do? And yeah, it was that's where the argument kind of came <laughs> in because I said even for even for like your populations with rehab and things like that is there's still elements where you have to train someone's quadriceps before you can train their squat pattern, for example, and all these sorts of things and how movements are great, but not everyone can or should necessarily do a squat, for example, but everyone could at some point do a variation of a leg extension or a leg press or, you know, train a more muscle um, based program. Anyway, before we descend into anarchy here, we're going to start fighting probably. Um, Yes, I've got a great story to tell along that line. I was uh, working with a client who had a, a, a sarcoma on her quadricep, and she wound up having to have two-thirds of her quad muscle surgically removed. Wow. So for that, doing squats was not going to happen with that individual because they literally did not have the muscle to control a squat movement without her knee collapsing. So what do we have to do for quad training? Leg extensions. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that, it's immaculately perfect for that individual because there was no option to be able to do a squat pattern because they just didn't have the strength or control over that specific range of motion. So there's always a time and a place for isolation training, muscle training. It's just a matter of does it fit the mold for the individual that you're working with. Absolutely. So I'm, so I'm right. <laughs> uh, so if someone was to ask you then, obviously based on the, the huge variety of people you work with and the things you do, um, if someone says, what do you do? Like, what do you class yourself as in? Sort of, what's your job title, as it were? My technical job title is exercise physiologist, but no one really knows what that is or what that does. So I usually just tell people I'm a personal trainer. At the end of the day, I'd rather people have an underwhelming view of what I do than try to sound way too smart and make it something where I'm more pretentious than anything else. I mean, at the end of the day, I count, I count reps most of the time and tell people how to squat and deadlift. I try not to program anything over 10 because then I got to take my socks off. I can't count that high. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the time it's more just a matter of, well, I, I get people to exercise and I get people to feel better and I get people to move better, lift bigger weights, lose body fat, gain muscle mass, all that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, that's usually just what I do. We always get the inevitable whenever I say I'm a personal trainer or, or, or even sometimes nutritionist, you get the inevitable, oh, can you help me with this? Uh, where I was always fine if you said, oh, I'm an exercise physiologist, they would be like, oh, so what does that do? And, yeah. and it's, well, as soon as you say those words, personal trainer, it's like all of a sudden, at a party, you now have to talk about your job for the whole evening. You're like, really? You have to do this? But yeah, I suppose yeah. It's, is it the same your side of the pond? Um, depends. I mean, part of it is I don't really go to a lot of parties, so I don't really have to think about that too much. But uh, um, if they, if people do start asking me about that kind of stuff, I usually just switch it back and say, so tell me about yourself. Tell me what do you do? And I just ask the leading questions to find out more about what their career is. So that way it's not about me. It becomes more about them. That way I can kind of dodge the, dodge the inevitable. <laughs> of just like I really need to lose my fat from here right uh-huh. where I can go to hit right here nowhere else uh, oh great cool yeah that's that's obviously going to work just go Dyson hook it up and make sure you have it on setting high I mean that's <laughs> all you, you want to lose it really well just do that 
it do that. <laughs> right, so um, from what I know of you, Dean, um, for a long time, I believe that you may have just moved where you kind of work now, but for a long time, mm -hmm. you were an advocate of uh, training in a commercial gym, and you that's where you built your business. Um, yes. Essentially, I think me and Dan understand why, and we both worked in commercial gyms before, I still do. Um, mm. But why why did you start out there, and why did you stay there for quite a long time, even though, as we would class you as one of the industry leaders, why did you stay there? Well, part of it is that I'm in a very unique situation where the, the owners of the facility were able to give me a lot of uh, freedom and access to different things that I, I understand that a lot of other trainers in commercial gyms may not have access to. Yeah. So to be able to do things like filming videos and uh, teaching workshops and traveling and doing my own stuff on the side, that wasn't in competition with anything that the company was going through. They gave me a lot of freedom and leeway in that, where some companies have actually pushed back against their trainers doing that kind of stuff. I didn't get any of that and I actually got encouragement for it. So in a lot of ways, it helped out that way to be able to make it more of a viable place to stay. Um, second, it was just a great facility to be able to say, you know, everything is in place. All the systems are in place. I don't need to worry about accounting. I don't need to worry about billing, invoicing, any of that kind of stuff. I don't need to worry about whether the lights are going to stay on tomorrow or whether the landlord is going to shut the place down. Um, it was a great situation for that, but I am moving on to just being independent going forward just because it'll give me a little bit more freedom and leeway to do a few different things. So it's been a great facility to work at and I would encourage all trainers to start in some type of a commercial facility because think about how much you learn by getting people given to you on a regular basis from a, a variety of different situations. Plus just learning how to manage people in a setting where people are watching you and people are seeing what you do with other clients. and coming up to you and asking you questions on a regular basis, it becomes more about how do you actually do, deliver a higher level of customer service versus just training a one-on-one -on -one kind of client. So for most trainers coming into the industry, yeah, I would definitely recommend starting off in a commercial facility to at least get an idea of how to work with people. It's amazing that there's a lot of trainers out there who are becoming internet famous because they passed a certification and they've never worked with an actual live human being before. Work with a lot of people to get really good at what you do, and then if you get to a point where you feel like, I'm not seeing professional or personal growth, and then you have to make a decision as far as whether you move on to somewhere else or not. But commercial gyms are a great place to start up. I think there's just, a, there's just a massive trend at the moment of people wanting to straight away go into either online training or own their own gym. Like they seem, That seems to be like the holy grail for so many people. Um, and like we've both obviously worked in commercial gyms, that's how we, how we met, and to be in that position, as you've mentioned, you have so many experiences during that time, not even just from a working with clients basis, but even just understanding how busy gyms are and what they're like to work in or work out in if you are someone who's a bit intimidating in the gym. And there's all these things that I can't imagine as an online trainer that someone just says to, oh, go and do this workout in a busy gym, you know, you give a female a bench press to do in a, um, you know, in a busy commercial gym full of guys in there. Like you have no idea how she feels going in there. Whereas working with, female clients you know how it feels to go into that area of the gym for example um, yep. and it's just I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from just from following your your journey is that working in a commercial gym is an extremely useful viable option for so many people and I can't believe that trainers have this obsession with wanting to have their own gym or be solely online when they've not even worked for a year in a gym I think it's it baffles me but also you got to think like in most <clears throat> training programs, they don't really teach you that much about business. So for a trainer getting into it and saying, 
I want to open my own gym. Okay, cool. What kind of lease options are you going to have on your facility? Are you going to be purchasing new equipment or are you going to be purchasing used equipment? And if so, what do you think a good going rate for weight plates should be? How are you going to set things up? Are you going to go full Aleco or are you going to go economy bumper plates? Do you want to have rubber matting on the floor? Do you want to have concrete with a little bit of paint? All these different elements that come down to the facility are things that you have no idea what to do or what not to do other than just saying, well, I have my eyes are bigger than my stomach at this point. Mm. So think about how much it, does it actually cost to open up a gym. Conservative estimates for a small space would be about fifteen to 20,000 pounds. And depending on where you're located, that doesn't include your lease pricing whatsoever. If you're in downtown central London, I don't even want to imagine what lease prices are in somewhere like that. If you're in the middle of nowhere, yeah, you're going to get a little bit of a cheaper rate, but then you got to get people into that facility. You also have to think about what marketing budgets are going to be. What's your cleaning budget going to be? What's your accounting supposed to be set up like? What happens if a client misses a billing date? What are you actually going to do for that? All these different things that have absolutely zero to do with training a human being, but all go into the background before you even open up on day one. And then what happens if a permit gets pulled on your place or you get a lien put on it and you have to shut up? Like the doors just have to be closed because the government has said, you know, we have to get this sorted up before you can actually charge a client. Then you're out for three to four to six weeks or months without any kind of income. And it all comes down to just a logistic nightmare. So I didn't want to have any stress on that. And I don't know too many training programs that teach trainers how to deal with any of that. That's all stuff you learn by experience or by going through the direct schooling for it. But even then, unless you're a trainer coming into this with an MBA, how are you going to know how to do any of that kind of stuff? Right. Get your feet wet, learn the business first, and then figure out, okay, what do I want to do going forward? Shadow people who are successful business owners, ask questions on what they do, what they don't do, figure out what to do from there. And then, okay, maybe you're ready to open a place up if you have enough of the capital saved up so you don't go into debt. Yeah, they yes. go. So that's uh, they're all the things. <laughs> they're literally all the things you got to write down, guys, just to, yeah. in case you uh, <laughs> start making that decision. I think that the um, along the same lines, um, we've talked about it before, and especially with Tony as well. He wrote a piece again about it. I think we may, may have like started that trend at the start of the year um, of the the people jumping to online training without maybe of being one to one before. And knowing how people, they're still, they're not in front of a person. They're not speaking in front of a person where they come in and go, oh, I feel like crap today. Like, all right, you've got to kind of free ball it and go, all right, we're just going to goblets with some bicycles or whatever. Okay. But making, making that kind of uh, one-to-one touch with somebody online, I, I found it quite tough when I first started doing it because 95% of my income is still one-to-one. I do all of that stuff. Dan's completely online, so you make the massive jump t- to do that. In your experience... What has been, do you, do you say that online training is tougher than one-to-one? And what has been the, the, the big, the big I don't know, turn-offs from doing it or the big turn-ons from doing it? Well, I do do a fair bit of online training now just because it's uh, a way that I can kind of buffer income, especially if I travel a bit or whatnot. But uh, yeah. some of the biggest challenges are you're not there at the time. So you can't adjust the workout on the fly. You have to do it kind of retroactively. Uh, if somebody sends me videos of the technique on their squat or their deadlift, I can't fix it in real time and help them get a better benefit out of it. It's something where it's like, okay, well, next week when you go do this workout, again, here are five or ten different technique cues that you have to work on. I also can't do any hands-on stuff like grab a person's knee and move it to a different position say, okay, do this kind of stuff, do that kind of stuff. I also have no idea how their facility is laid out or what it's like when they're busy or what kind of equipment is available or any of that kind of stuff. So I can't think on the fly as I go through things. So a great example is if you come into the gym on, let's say, a Monday afternoon 
Monday's been International Bench Press Day. I don't know if guys over in London do that too, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> so you program sets of bench press for your client because Monday is bench press day and all the bench presses are fully loaded and there's waiting lineup for it. Okay, so what do you do with something like that? If you have an online coaching client and you say, okay, well, instead of bench press, let's do incline press. Well, okay, the, the incline press is full, so what do you do? The client's at the gym at that point in time saying, well, what do I do now for my workout? Do I just wait an hour until the gym's less busy or how do I progress with this? If I'm there with the client, I can do it kind of on the fly. I feel like I should be biting my fingernails too. You guys are both going harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just natural. <laughs> hey, well, what do I do at this point in time to help the client out when they're there and I'm maybe eight or nine time zones away and doing something different like, I don't know, sleeping or working, training other clients? How can I help that person in real time right now? Well, I can't. So it's something where you definitely have to have a bit of understanding as far as how the variability of different facilities would be set up, what kind of equipment's available, are they working out in peak hours, what kind of uh, stuff can I get that person to do as a backup plan, like a plan B or plan C or plan D even, if plan A isn't working. Do we superset with stuff that's on one side of the gym and then all the way on the other side of the gym? Or in my gym, if that stuff's right next to each other, yeah, cool, that's really easily, but it may not be set up that way in somewhere else. So if I'm working with somebody in Brazil, somebody else in Tijuana, somebody else in London, somebody in um, Taiwan, or somebody else in Australia, all of those gyms might be set up entirely different and it's not something that I can really control or help out with. So it's just a matter of, well, everything has to be retroactive when it's online coaching, whereas it can be proactive when you're in in-person coaching. So that's kind of the biggest difference between the two. You also have to learn, right, to be you have to be retroactive. You have to learn what you would do proactively. So you have to, by doing that, you go back and you're right, well, next time this happens, you can do this. But it's, it's just such a common thing we see now is people wanting to make that jump. And I'm like, you know, you've only ever seen 20 people in, in person. And but as you mentioned at the start, you know, you talked about the variety of people you work with. And I think that's the key is, I, you know, having worked with 70-year-old females in the gym who just want to be able to lift a bag over their head and also working with, you know, like you said, ex-elite athletes, it's one of those where you know how to talk to different clientele based on their age, because that's one thing, based on their ability, um, based on their goals, their motivations. And it's just, if you just go straight into online, just, you know, you've got a hammer and everyone's a nail. And it's it's just really boring and generic, I think, without having that aspect of you've been on the gym floor, you understand what it's like on the gym floor. You understand that giving a workout to someone, you know, just maybe focus on just dumbbells because the only space in the gym is available at the peak hours is by the dumbbell rack so it's like well what's the point of getting them to run around and do loads of different drills and yeah I just think it's it's something that a lot of people just seem to want to skip that really important bit of just getting in the gym and working out with people for five six years so much like people look at it as a boring bit but that's the bit you learn the most um you know during your time as a trainer absolutely and I, I would say that when people say you know training people in person is boring what do you think it's like training people through a computer screen I mean, you don't get that personal connection. You don't get to actually chat with somebody. You don't get to tell each other jokes in real time. You don't get to find out really deep things about that individual like you would in person. You can't throw things back and forth on the fly as easily. If I have somebody coming in through a computer screen, I know almost nothing about that individual other than the bits of text that have been typed on that and maybe the odd video tech feedback that I get from the client. So from in-person to an online coaching, I find in-person to be way more exciting because I can do things with that individual a lot more directly, but also I can figure out the person a lot more effectively than I could through an online screen. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely an aspect, like I said, of my, my job now that I, 
I do I have struggled with occasionally is I went from training people face to face to online and we do as much as we can via Skype calls and video calls and video messages and I like to speak to my clients as much as possible but I can go throughout a whole day and get to sort of 4 or 5 p.m. and go hang on a minute I've not actually seen another human today like for the last six hours and it, that can be a bit like oh, actually I'd quite like to go see someone <laughs> and you do miss that aspect of communication that yeah working one-to-one with someone you do um, you do pick up those kind of vibes off them and it is quite nice socially to have that so you don't get that much from your two-year-old no no, no I don't get it cool <laughs> screaming at me usually yeah cool um, so I think we should we've done that's a, bit, a fair bit of business talk I think from talk us through because obviously you just closed that workshop now sucks to everybody who missed it um, on the complete uh, shoulder mobility you do you still have the, the blueprint that's available online right yeah that's the video recording of the workshop so if people want they can go check that out rather than have us come to their backyard and yeah. talk about squats and deadlifts in that way but we're, we're hoping to line up some new stuff here we're just pulling the audience right now to see what they want yeah that's awesome um so when i guess we we want we kind of know you as a bit of a hip specialist as well um we just did that fair to, i'm hoping that's fair to say otherwise we're playing our ass is that cool yeah i mean it's yeah. a workshop so <laughs> yeah, might as well. cool um so in terms of uh what kind of mistakes and big issues do you see with uh, maybe trainers talking about the hip or what common misconceptions do people have about training hip joints or any kind of flow drills or any mobility work that they're doing? What are the big things that basically you need to kind of red flag and maybe people are making mistakes on and need to improve? Um, the biggest thing is just thinking that everyone's kind of the same. So when you see something on the internet where somebody says, oh, everyone who's a human should be able to squat, ash to grass, um, get right down into it and then hang out there for a half hour. That's well and good in theory, but in theory, communism works and Donald Trump's a good president. So <laughs> in practice, it might be a little bit different, right? So at the same time, it's a matter of, okay, well, does that individual in front of you right now have the joint ability to get into a hip flexion state to be able to exist in that squat position? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. So to say to somebody, well, if you don't squat to this depth, you're a terrible human being, I don't know, man. It's something where to tell people what they should or shouldn't do isn't necessarily my role. It's more to help them explore what they can do. So if I have somebody who their hip is in a retroverted state, their femoral neck is in more of uh, a mutated position, maybe they have something going on with their sacral ridge, which anteriorly, posteriorly tracks a little bit deeper versus laterally, they may not be able to get into a deep squat position. Maybe they also have really long femurs and a short torso. All those kind of features add into something where it's like, okay, well, maybe the deep squat isn't something that they're going to excel at, but maybe they can do really cool other stuff. So maybe they have uh, more of a, a vertically loaded femoral neck. Maybe they have a deep socket. And maybe they can bear weight for extreme long periods of time. Maybe they can march or do farmer carries or do yoke walks or uh, run very long distances really, really well. And that's something that, yeah, the people who can deep squat really make terrible marathon runners. The people who can't deep squat usually make really bad deep squatters. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's something they should do or shouldn't do. It's just that everybody's a little bit different. I train a couple of marathon runners who are the tightest human beings in the world. But that tension helps them when it comes to running because they don't have to waste a whole bunch of energy trying to keep their active control systems in place to help their joints from falling apart or flopping around like a fish out of water. They can just bounce down the road like a tennis ball and be very efficient at what they do. These are the people where marathons aren't quite extreme enough, so they do things like ultra marathons. 
which I have no idea why anyone would do that. We invented bicycles and cars for a reason. <laughs> you don't have to run anymore. So if you want to run, if you have that far to go, drive. You have air conditioning and a cup holder. It's way more comfortable. And you get a little Sirius XM radio on there. It's happiness. <laughs> you don't need to run that far. See, but, that, this is why I don't run, you see, because I've got the flexibility to squat. So that, you just summed up perfect. That's why I don't run anymore. That's it. I don't have to run. Cool. Yeah, and if, if you can squat that low already, do you need more mobility training? Probably not. You're already there, right? It's like me saying, if I want to shut the door and the door shuts, do I need to shut the door more? No, it's already shut. You're there. You're good. Keep pushing on the door. Bad stuff is going to happen, right? But if you have somebody who cannot achieve that depth, maybe they have a structure that doesn't line up for it. Maybe they have a restriction in a motor control issue or something like that. So that's where you have to get into a little bit more of an investigation to say, okay, well, if I grab this person's leg, can I put their knee to their chest? But when they stand up, they look like Bambi on fresh legs for the first time in their life. Okay, well, now we can work on motor training kind of stuff. We can work on active mobility. Do we need to static stretch? No, they can already put their knee to their chest. You get somebody who gets to 90 degrees of hip flexion and they're stuck. Maybe we could do some static stretching and expand that out if they're young. The older they are, the less likely they're going to get more range of motion out of that joint. We get a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old, a 70-year-old saying, oh, I have to squat to the ground like that 15-year-old over there who's got the mobility of a gymnast. Oh, that's, that tells me I'm a really tight person. Yeah, but you probably also have degenerative joints that are not going to allow that range of motion to occur. And if you keep jamming on it, jamming on it, jamming on it, you're probably either going to develop either osteoarthritis, impingement, some sort of a labral tear, maybe a joint capsule issue or something like that. So why would you push into that range when we already know that it's probably not going to be something that happens pain-free or problem-free. Aside from that, a lot of training programs that you see teach people how to do strength training in just sagittal plane and mobility through all the other planes. How many people do strength training through the frontal plane? Not enough, right? So if you're only training sagittal plane strength, you're doing a really good job at taking that ball and socket joint and turning it into a hinge joint, which means you no longer have a hip. Now you have a knee because that's the point of a knee, right, is to be a hinge joint. So if you're training the hip, you got to be able to train it to do all the different directions that it's supposed to do. Flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, internal, external rotation, and circumduction. Make circles with that damn thing. Do stuff with it. Take the person and put them into strength requirements through all of those different movements. Take them and put them through mobility requirements through all those different movements. A hip day should only involve like two or three sagittal plane movements and then a bunch of other stuff. you got a whole bunch of availability on your menu of training Let's get the hip to actually do stuff with it. So in terms of, if you're in the, other than sagittal plane, I'm hoping everybody knows where they're going through their sagittal plane motions. Um, what would be your favorite exercises for every single one of those? Well, not every single one. Give me a, a couple of in instances of the other anatomical motions that you went through, or maybe favorite drills or favorite exercises to do. Uh, Cossack squats, I think, are really underrated for a lot of people. And you consider a lot of populations, like especially with the athletes who have to do any kind of side-to-side -side movement. Yeah. Like in Canada, hockey is really big. I don't know if it's big over in Britain, but no. uh, I'm, you know, <laughs> the British hockey team is uh, a perennial also rant, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Canadian cricket team. It doesn't quite do that well. Yeah. <laughs> Same time, it's like whenever you're doing a lateral movement, like soccer players who have to cut sideways or American football players who have to juke and jive and go sideways, that kind of stuff. Anybody who has to move in a nonlinear fashion, caustic squats are amazing. So it's just a squat going sideways. It's really easy to do, but that gets you out of that sagittal plane lock and gets you into more of a frontal plane type of movement. Anything that involves hip rotation, like something like a shin box or 
turning left and right when you do squats, pivoting, any of that kind of stuff, works on the transverse plane of action through the hip. So just being able to do stuff like turn is a massively important thing for not just athletes, but also the elderly population that are at risk of falling. So if I have somebody who's coming in after having a hip replacement, where do you think 90% of their activities are going to be? Straightforward and bad sagittal plane. Where do you think the majority of their risk is going to be? If they try to turn so that they can go in a different direction, they have no idea how to do that. So get somebody to do something like a sideline clam or an internal rotation clam just to be able to train a little bit of strength with that and then get them to do things like pivots. Anything like that is going to be beneficial for the, the hip compared to just doing sagittal plane because it doesn't just train muscles. It trains their neuromuscular ability to access that range of motion and trains their brain to actually decrease a lot of the threat or stress of doing those movements. So think about a soccer player who's trying to cut and turn. They don't know how to do it properly. They might tear their ACL. And that's just a, a fact of the sport for, I guess, football, not soccer players. Right? Yeah. Got to talk to the audience, right? <laughs> so a pivot where they plant their right leg and they take their left leg, go over it and turn towards their right side and they lock out that right knee, there's a high risk of ACL injury because you have full extension with rotation on that knee joint. So if I can teach a player how to do a pivot by doing a drop step with that right leg, drive off their left leg, and then get into a sprint, not only are they going to be reducing their risk of ACL, but they're going to increase their speed to be able to approach that attacker a lot more effectively. So when you get into really good strength training programs for athletic performance or injury prevention, a lot of it comes down to understanding etiology of different injuries, but then also how do you kind of cheat the system to make the person better at what they're doing while also reducing the risk of injuries? Perfect. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of hip drills, in terms of mobility drills, anything, just anything in terms of warm-ups or normal exercises that you see, what is the most commonly butchered exercise you see in terms of hip stretches, hip mobility, whatever it is? I'll tell you what mine is after. I think I might have got it off you actually, so it might, you might have the same answer. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's one that I see that's really commonly butchered. I mean, you'll see people doing things like uh, sideline clams with the three-pound weight on the outside of their knee, which, mm. cool, what's that three-pound weight doing? When you walk, you have full body weight. I'm guessing you don't weigh three pounds. So <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, I'm guessing the hip could probably stand a lot more loading than you're giving it. Maybe a 30-pound dumbbell in there would be a bit more appropriate, but you know, they don't make ones that are 30 pounds. Um, Maybe they do. You just got to paint a few pink dumbbells. Yeah. Uh, I think the uh, Cressy performance where they say that their pink dumbbells start at 50 pounds. So it's uh, pretty cool to be able to have that kind of concept. Outside of that, any kind of, uh, if you go on hands and knees and then do a kickback where it looks like your spine is arching more than Linda Blair and Exorcist, um, you're not doing a glute kickback, you're doing a lower back kickback. So getting people to understand hip extension versus spine extension is ridiculously important. If I want my glutes to work, I don't want my lumbar erectors to work. So I got to figure out how to not make that the default pattern. If your back is getting sore after you do glute work, you're doing it wrong. I think my favorite has to be the um, the hip flexor stretch in in like anterior pelvic tilt, and all you're doing is just going into more and more pelvic tilt, and you're like, "Is that hurting?" Yeah, yeah, I can really feel it. I think I'm like. You sure? <laughs> I think I got. I think I've, I've seen one of your posts before, and it just again reinforced that whole thing of if you squeeze your glutes, you can feel your hip flexor stretch. Most people can in that position, yep. and it's just the way I see. I've seen trainers in every gym I've ever been in. It's the yeah, just push right forward. I'm like, no, don't, don't stop, stop now. It's that's the most common one, I think. And just jacking up that back leg as well. So uh, yeah, yeah, obviously we have to put that quad in yeah. just deep, deep flexion already because 
yeah. yeah. We, we were really trying to stretch that guy as well. Yeah, and I mean, in yoga positions, yeah, getting into maximum extension while being able to grab your foot, that's a, a classic yoga pose. But if you're trying to stretch out your hip flexors, well, for most people, the hip can only extend to maybe zero or to 10 degrees past yeah. neutral. So if you're hanging out there and your hips are about three feet, maybe a meter ahead of where your knee is, you got long femurs for one, and two, you're doing it wrong. So you're really only going to be translating the hip a few inches or centimeters ahead of where that knee position is. And if you do it right, you're going to feel an ungodly stretch through the front of your thigh because, you know, that's where your hip flexors are. And if you feel your lower back or like your abs are getting a stretch, again, you're doing it wrong. Think about it sort of like if somebody's supposed to be doing a row. What are the muscles that are supposed to be working on your row? Your lats, your rhomboids. If you feel your upper traps, you're doing it wrong. That's a great way that trainers should be communicating whether or not the exercise is working or not is ask the client, where do you feel this working? If they say anything other than what should be doing it, change the exercise, yeah. either technique-wise or whatever, because they're doing it wrong. I think, yeah, especially with trainers, I think they ask that question sometimes, and they're like, yeah, that's cool, that's good, and then they'll just carry on. They're like, no, just just stop. Just stop and then re recoach, redo it. Now start to maybe pop, what, pop, poke where you want them to be feeling. I, I can't stress that enough. So I do uh, seminars at Third Space quite a lot, and I'm like, just touch, touch, literally touch the muscles that you want your client to feel. And the, the chances are that neuromuscularly, then they'll start feeling where what's actually happening now because they know where where you want them to feel. And they'll be like, all right, yeah, cool. I was feeling that. You did a a workshop a couple of weeks ago with uh, mm. Team Box, and then there was a load of stuff I know Dan was talking about through like lat pull downs and stuff. Yeah, just people just don't have a clue. Like they'll they'll do a lap pull down, and, and I'll be like, okay, cool. So how do you feel? I'm like, yeah, my my biceps really feel it. I'm like, this isn't for your biceps, you know, or it's not for your traps. And and then you, all you have to do is go through these cues, and like you say, you touch them, and you go right. This is where you should be feeling it. And all of a sudden, a few other cues, and they they really can focus on the movement. And then they're moving less load. And again, there's this assumption that if you're moving less load, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, no, you're now doing it right. Um, and I think there's there's an obsession with trainers that it's they're so quick to push the weight on people and push resistance training that they forget that they're not actually training the muscles or the movements, whichever you prefer. <laughs> uh, they, would, they were trying to because they just want to get them strong and they just think that that means by putting more weight on them without working the muscles that they actually should be working. And it's so common. It's just massively common in the industry. Like People doing lateral raises with dumbbells and they're like, yeah, my traps really hurt now. I'm like, well, we're not doing that. It's not what we should be doing it. I mean, it's just that comfort. Can you imagine a coach in any other discipline, whether it was a team sport or whether it was like vocal coach or whether it was like ballet dancing? They're like, yeah, just keep going doing the wrong thing. Just keep going. Just keep doing the wrong thing. And I'm just here to collect a paycheck. And at the end of the day, I don't care whether you get hurt or not, right? You will not last as a coach in any of those things if your clients or your students were doing a terrible job and you just let them keep doing it. And especially if they had to go to another coach at some point in time, they're like, holy cow, you just got completely wrecked up because the previous coach didn't have any idea what they were doing. Your reputation would be shot. So when we think about coaching, it's about teaching more than anything else. It's not just about doing. The doing is the expression of the teaching. So that's something that should not be forgotten by any personal trainer out there is that you have to teach, 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 teach before you get the person to actually do. Think about Olympic weightlifting. How many Olympic weightlifters out there or coaches of Olympic weightlifters will say, yeah, just jam two or three wheels on the bar and just get to work. See what happens. No, they're going to do endless drills with an empty bar to feel comfortable. And for many of them, it'll be with a dowel before they even get to a bar because that technique has to be drilled first. 
And the only time they're actually going to put weight on that bar is when they get the technique down with everything else. I like that saying. Yeah. That was a great saying. <laughs> Doing is the expression of teaching. <laughs> like it. Um, so what is, yeah, <laughs> what is your favorite mobility drill? If you have to pick one, whether it is the one that helps the most people or if it's the one that is the most extreme, whatever it might be, what's your favorite? Um, high intensity breathing. So yeah, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> it, it, the extreme element of it isn't necessarily the breathing itself, but what it does for the individual. So think about things like Wim Hof method. It's uh, Wim Hof, if nobody's aware of that, he's a guy who's kind of called the Iceman. He does a lot of cold stuff. Uh, everyone's always enamored with that. And then I just say, you know, come to Edmonton in February. Nobody takes me up on that offer. Everyone just doesn't seem to work that well. But at the same time, there is a lot of research and science behind how do you actually utilize high force, high velocity, or focused breathing work for things like parasympathetic stimulation, for environmental moderation, for mobility training. When you think about people that are just really stressed and tight walking around downtown London, how many of them know how to do a deep inhale, deep exhale? Not many of them. When, we, when I work with people and I say, okay, I'm gonna test a range of motion, now I want you to do three long inhale exhales with a little bit of force behind it. I want you to empty your lungs, breathe out every drop of air you have. And then when we retest range of motion, it's improved and they can access that and use that more effectively. It's eye-opening for a lot of people how important breathing actually is. And when it comes to things like lifting bigger weights, you have to do things like Valsalva maneuvers. When it comes to doing forceful strikes in kickboxing, boxing, mixed martial arts, anything like that, you have to do a pulsed breathing. When you look at any of the work that Stu McGill has talked about when it comes to breathing mechanics and force production and torque on the spine, breathing is the major focus point of anything relating to force production. If you want to have mobility in yoga, you have to learn how to relax your breathing. You want to be able to dance properly or play soccer. You have to breathe under load. You want to get into mixed martial arts and you got a guy leaning their elbow onto your chest. You have to be able to brace hard to resist against you know getting your lung collapsed, but then you also have to be able to breathe behind that brace to be able to make sure that you don't gas out. So forceful breathing has a huge role through a whole bunch of different disciplines, and it's probably the fastest way to get people to see results. Just get them to learn how to breathe, learn how to produce some force behind it, and be able to activate and open up and do things that they normally wouldn't be able to do. It's not the answer I was expecting. No, to be honest. <laughs> I think I think we've, we we know. Um, I guess it's, you're the from our perspective. You're the guy that. Um, made popularized more of the flow drills. So I'm thinking Dan was thinking more flow drill maybe. No, I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad, I'm not saying it's a bad answer, it's a great answer. And if anything I'm gonna be going away now and before I train going actually I don't think about that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um I was thinking more, yeah, it's gonna be a, a, one of your extensive flow drills. But yeah, I think I think sometimes we forget, don't we, as trainers that, you know, we all want to hear the, the advanced kind of sexy stuff and actually it's you know it really comes down to the to the, the fundamentals. I don't want to say basics because it's not basic. Clearly, it's not basic, it's, but it is a fundamental and it's something that needs to be thought about um, in this whole process. Yeah, but think about why the advanced stuff is advanced, right? Because it's had to build on the basics and the fundamentals to the point where it was expressed in a way that you could start involving a whole bunch of different elements into that process. So think about like the hierarchy of learning and development in any process or skill. There has to be the point of seeing things works and understanding the thought process behind how it works, doing it in a very step-by-step -step and gradual, broken-down manner. Let, let's take the example of you know, somebody who's playing football. 
what do you do before you have to break three tackles and score a top shelf? Well, you have to learn how to actually put your foot to the ball. And then you have to learn how to run and you have to learn how to cut. Then you have to learn how to read the opponent. And then you have to learn how to read multiple opponents. Then you get into things like chaos. What if things aren't going well according to plan that you think of in your head? How do you react on your feet? And then what's going on with the goalie? Can you actually put lift under that ball? Those are all basic elements that are applied in sequence and in series with the elements of chaos on top of it. So when people start saying, oh, well, I want to do this full mobility drill. Great. Do you at least have enough internal rotation in your hip to accommodate that drill? No. Then we can't do that full mobility drill because you're going to suck at it. You're going to hate it and everyone's going to laugh at you. So let's start, before we do that, let's get you to actually get a bit of internal rotation in your hip first. Once you get that, then we can start moving into a couple of different stages where we go internal rotation to external rotation. Maybe do a flexion to extension. Maybe then we can start applying step-by-step -step process. Think about how many trainers know how to dance. Very few, right? But what is a flow mobility? It's a series of steps. It's a sequence of activity to be able to go from one movement to one position to another, to another, to another. So when you're doing that, that takes a lot of brain power as well as motor control patterning to be able to do it. If trainers only know how to do one or two things in sequence, because all they've ever done is one or two things in sequence, they're going to suck at flow mobility stuff. So before we get to that stuff, let's work on putting two things into sequence first. Then maybe we can work into three. Then maybe we can work into four or five. But again, we're building off of the fundamentals of do you have the joint range of motion to be able to accommodate that? Do you have motor control to be able to accommodate that? Do you have the cardiovascular conditioning to not die after you do two reps of that? And then is there actually a need for you to do that? Do you want to do that kind of stuff for mixed martial arts or capoeira or dance class or anything where it's just like, oh, let's just have some fun. And then do you actually have the space in your gym to do it? Because I don't want you to be over the dude who's in the nipple hangers uh, tank top who's doing bicep curls right next to you while you're trying to do your flow mobility drills. <laughs> That's me. Right? You just described Dan. Right. <laughs> nipple hangers these days? <laughs> if anybody's warm enough. <laughs> it's too cold at the moment. It wasn't too gauche for uh, London, right? Maybe they, they all wear tank tops over there. I don't know. No. No, they don't. No. So, so, some, people, some people can't get lean enough for that, so, you know, they have to... <laughs> this is a constant battle that we have. Yeah, it depends on what neighborhood you're in, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Hanging out in East London versus Chelsea, it might be a little bit of a different scene, right? Yeah, 100%. I think so. Going into Soho, then you, you might just... Oh, everybody's wearing those tank tops, so you're all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms, I mean, we briefly chatted before the show um, about new projects that are coming up um, with Dean. Um, are you in? Uh, are you able to basically discuss this, or is it, is it top secret at the moment? Or we can just yeah. I can talk about anything. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's not top secret. All right. So um, yeah. So obviously, Dean's moving on from. Uh, from the, the hip and joint uh, blueprint stuff um, with Tony G. And uh, you're doing stuff with Mike Israel, who we know. Um, so what's going on there? Um, Mike and I uh, taught a seminar in Edmonton back in September before it got brutally cold. And uh, it was called the L2 Fitness Summit because the place that we were speaking at was L2 Fitness. So it's a nice, easy, handy name. Yeah. Uh, I did a whole day of assessment talk. So I went down the rabbit hole of, what should you be looking for with a client? What should you be working towards? Uh, how do you match their goals to the assessment you're actually trying to do? Do you need to involve very advanced uh, body composition stuff or would skin folds be appropriate for him? What about things like uh, cardiovascular conditioning? Do you need to do assessments and build programs based on that? 
then we went through biomechanical and anthropometric kind of stuff. And uh, Mike talked about hypertrophy, which is something he's incredibly skilled at. So uh, we he went through an entire day of training for hypertrophy, how hypertrophy happens on a physiological level, nutrition strategies for hypertrophy, how do you vary your programming, really, really in-depth stuff. So really awesome to be able to have him add in that layer of uh, different types of content than what my viewers or listeners are probably used to seeing, but he's one of the best in the world at what he does, so that's why we wanted to have him on there. Um, that's a video series that's releasing December 5th, so hopefully people are able to check that out. Continuing education credits are available for it, so for any of the uh, trainers that are looking to getting their, uh, what do they call it over there, the level three or? Well, yeah, every level reps. three, the rep stuff, yeah, usually. Everywhere's got their different uh, certifications. Like in Norway, they don't need continuing education credits, so it's just like, yeah, show up and away you go. Um, in Canada and North America, it's pretty much like, yeah, if you don't get your credits, then you have to pay to recertify, all that kind of stuff. So everywhere's a little bit different. But I've got that going on. I've got uh, another product or another workshop that Tony and I are going to start working on in 2018 and hopefully be able to start traveling and teaching that to different people and um, changing from commercial gym to being independent. So got a lot of stuff on my plate these days. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah. Is that everything? Yeah. No, 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 I think that's everything. I think we can I'm, go on to the, the non-fitness. Yeah, we can go non-fitness now because we know uh, Dean does does have a life outside of uh, fitness, I believe. He does document it on social media as much as possible, so it's quite nice to see you've actually got a bit of a personality, not like, yeah, Jim, yeah, mostly, um, which is great. Um, so in terms, I mean, after this interview, uh, me and Dan are going out to uh, go have a burger. Um, with hopefully some of our listeners. We have no idea if anybody's going to turn up, but it might just be a nice romantic meal for me and Dan. Um, but within, what is your favorite burger and shake combo? Honestly, I, I'm probably going to get lynched for this, but I, I don't like burgers that much. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm kind of, it's like if I have beef in front of me, I prefer it to be a steak. Okay. So not that I'm against the food of burgers, it's just that, you know, I, if, if given the choice between steak and burger, I'll pick the steak any day. Um, part of it's also coming down to the fact that whenever I eat them, I always feel a little bit like garbage for about six hours afterwards. So it, it's not anything to do with, you know, all oh, burgers are terrible. It's just that when I eat a steak, I feel awesome. When I eat a burger, I feel like I need yeah. to take about a three hour nap afterwards. Just to be able to like, <laughs> awesome. Let's go steak well, then. Favorite steak then. There you go. Favorite steak? Any kind of sauce? What are we talking about? Uh, well, Alberta is kind of known for beef, so uh, that's definitely a pleasure to be somewhere like that. Um, Tony and I did a workshop in Boston a, a couple of weeks ago, and we went to this place called Smith & Wileski, a really, really high-end steak restaurant, really good stuff. And I got the 16-ounce bone-in uh, sirloin, or not sirloin, was it sirloin or ribeye, something like that. 16-ounce bone-in, and it was absolutely amazing. They prepared it perfectly, and they spiced it just right, so... You get some places where they either drown it in salt and seasoning or they don't put anything on it. Yeah. It's one of those kind of things where it's just enough to be able to do it properly, just like chalk in the gym. Like you can chalk it and live in hell out of yourself and make yourself into the snowman. Or you could have just enough chalk to be able to hang onto the bar and not feel like you're just ripping everything apart. Yeah. So seasoning on a steak becomes incredibly important if you want to have good flavor out of it, but also to you know, not die of like hypersodium or anything like that. <laughs> that's fair we'll, we'll let you have the steak after I mean we've we've had some awful answers previously it's not it's definitely not the worst one we're right <laughs> in terms of topping as well yeah 
But no ribeye steak. I mean, to be fair, if I if I think if I did have a choice between top quality ribeye steak or a burger, it mm-hmm. you know you probably go to steak. Like it's just more of a burgers, just a bit more common, aren't they? In terms of when people have them, but that's that's the reason it came up. What about um, what about milkshakes? So you don't, you don't really have a steak, but yeah, see, milkshake is one of those kind of things where you got to have the right ingredients for it. Like I don't know about dairy over in the uh, UK, but dairy in North America it can be good or really terrible. There, there's kind of the two variations between it. Um, some places, uh, if they like, I'll, I'll throw it under the bus. U.S. dairy is kind of the lowest quality you could find. <laughs> Canadian is a step up from that. And if you go to mainland Europe, like France and places like that, their dairy is out of this world. Like you look at butter in France, and it's actually yellow, creamy, and what you would expect to be butter. In North America, it's white, chalky, and you got to like melt it to make it actually do anything. It's like hydrogenated vegetable oil that they call butter, but the dairy has to be like good quality. If you get bad ice cream, it almost has a plastic feel and taste to it. Yeah. So that's you can tell whether or not the milkshake is actually good quality. So to have a good milkshake, you kind of have to have the ratio between ice cream and milk just right. If it's too much, then it's going to taste like you're chewing your milkshake a bit too much. If it's too lean, then it's not going to be quite the right texture. And also you have to have all the secondary ingredients in there, like alcohol. That's important to have. <laughs> So you you are on the side of a hard shake. Then. What 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 would you put in your hard shake? What, what alcohol are we talking about? Well, the best things for things like um, milkshakes would obviously be vodka, just due to the fact that it doesn't change the texture of anything going in. If you ever try to mix things like scotch and milkshake, it's a terrible idea because yeah. both of the flavors compete against each other, and it winds up making you feel like you're drinking an ashtray. Not a good idea. I mean, especially if you get like a smoky or peaty scotch and you put that into a milkshake, not quite right. It's kind of like putting your steak into the milkshake, right? Savory and sweet usually don't go well together, but if you're going to have things like a vodka, if you can get a flavored vodka, then you can change the, the taste of what you're actually drinking with your milkshake. But to be honest, I'm not huge on milkshakes when it comes to drinking them. I like them once in a while, but it's one of those kind of things where if other stuff was on the menu, I'd probably go for like a Diet Coke or an Old Fashioned or Manhattan or, you know, water. <laughs> <laughs> Decent Once in a while. Um, so back into a little bit of training. What's your favorite exercise that you would do for the rest of your life? Walking, deadlifts, and sex. Amazing. Wow. Is that top three? Is that in order? Your wife Maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> when you think about um, walking, as far as like cardiovascular development, mobility, spinal health, all that kind of stuff incredibly important deadlifting you have to lift stuff once in a while it builds bone density builds muscle density sex forms relationships with people in a much deeper way than you could through something like a skype connection and (laughs) have that intimacy with a partner right so all three of those things are massively important for very different reasons but they all intertwine one way or another (laughs) (laughs) that's the best answer we've had that is the best that is the most well thought out answer to it i think um and obviously we know your um famous for your overheard at Starbucks uh, captions on Facebook. So what is the best thing you've ever overheard at Starbucks? Well, I, I share everything that I hear at Starbucks in like completely context-free snippets and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it's been kind of weird because you know how they've created the app so that you can order ahead and not have to wait in line? You don't hear nearly as many of the conversations anymore. And no. People are all tucked to their phone. Typically, that was just me tucked to my phone and everyone else was having conversations around me. Either that or on to me now and nobody talks when I come down there. So 
Um, some of the best ones are when people like share intimate details about themselves, their partners or whoever. And it'll be like, Oh, I was talking with my wife and she said, you know, I, I can't grow a mustache out for November. Otherwise she's going to have to get me the white panel van to go with it. And <laughs> stuff like that kind of stuff. And, but yeah, I mean, most people are, because it's in public, they're not going to be too salacious, but, uh, Every now and then you get the funny ones popping up. Yeah, they are great. I'd urge everybody to at least follow you on uh, your Facebook because they do pop up every now and again. Um, it's always <laughs> decent laugh as well. Um, yeah, in terms of um, across the board and in terms of trainers that you've trained, um, what is possibly the best thing, um, I don't know, best thing a trainer has uh, kind of showed you or the worst thing some a trainer has said to you? Maybe uh, maybe it was a celebrity trainer. I don't know. I know you've had uh, some, some grief with uh, Tracy Anderson, which has been brilliant um, through the years um, in terms of your two kilo, uh, lifting a two kilo dumbbell or whatever it was. No, no, no woman should ever carry a two kilo dumbbell around or should lift anything else apart from that or was a bit That's mad. It. No woman should lift more than three pounds. There we go. That's the one I was looking for. Specific two of her workouts, which... Yeah. And the funny thing is that there was a video of her training Gwyneth Paltrow, who's like her number one client, and she's like, no woman should lift over three pounds. Immediately after that, Gwyneth says, so when I'm lifting my 30-pound child, I'm like, <laughs> completely did not connection between those two things, right? And on the video where she completely threw you under the bus for saying something incredibly stupid. But... Yeah, I mean, when people start coming up with thought processes that have literally no bearing on physiology or science, it's like, oh, yeah, if you spin, your legs are going to get bulky. Okay, well, I'll show you my wife who rides 14 hours a week, and let me see how bulky her legs actually are. The only way she gets bulky is by doing things like squats and deadlifts, but you know what? She wants to get bigger legs. She wants to get stronger legs because that's her sport. If people are like, oh, running makes your legs bulky, so what? Do you enjoy running? Who cares about whether your legs are a little bit thicker muscle? I mean, when we look at people and say, oh, you have to be less and less and less and less, that means you don't do as much. So why is that something that we want to aspire to, right? What is the, what is the point of looking like you do nothing? I have no idea why, right? Some of the best things I hear from trainers um, usually just comes down to teaching people that they can, teaching people that they can do more than what they think was possible. If you have a client who has one of those light bulb moments and all of a sudden the world opens up in front of them, that's the greatest feeling ever as a trainer. And when it comes to a trainer telling you a way of getting that client to have that light bulb moment, it's amazing. If it opens more doors versus shutting them, I'm all for it. Yeah, the light bulb moment is sometimes thing because all trainers. It's the one thing that you aspire to every day. That's like your when that happens and you see it, you just that's that's like when you go home, you're like you've got a good day, you're like because you know, a few people got that today and I still have it now, even nutrition, like the amount of times I'll be saying to someone, right, it's just about this, you don't have to stress about this so much, just focus on these basics, and it's only after a few weeks that they kind of have that light bulb moment, whatever it is, that they eat a burger and they don't gain a stone, they think they are going to, whatever it is, and it's those those moments that make you, as a, as a trainer, I think, keep you, that's, that's what keeps you coming back, I think that's what makes the job so rewarding, is when you see someone finally go, shit, I get it now, that is Absolutely. it, that's the holy grail, I think. Nutrition's hard because everybody's got their... No, it's um, not. People <laughs> confuse it so much. Just so much, yeah. They read around calories too much. So. I, I find myself saying the same things just over and over <laughs> and over again. Bread is not for making fat. Just, just eat what you want. Just don't eat too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they get married to their own ideology that they just can't see the forest for the trees. 
Starbucks yes. is the best for that as well. Like, if you're overhead, it's just this uh, nutrition. And the, the reason I said the question before about what do you class yourself as is because I now don't really say I'm a nutritionist. I just say I'm a personal trainer because when you're a nutritionist, everyone then tells you their view. Whereas at least when you're, say you're a trainer, someone will go, oh, oh, I, I go to the gym. Oh, brilliant, I didn't ask that. But, <laughs> but when you say nutritionist, it's like, oh, yeah, should you be eating that then? I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I've got more reason to eat it than you have because, you know, you need to lose a few pounds or whatever. But it's... It's just that concept of like, this is a bad food or ah, let's not get into it. We'll be here. You'll waste your whole Saturday. Yeah. Um, but yeah. In, so in terms of, uh, obviously, you've been in and around the industry for a while and you kind of big online, kind of fairly well known around the world. Um, and you've collaborated with uh, a lot of people or spoken with a lot of people. Who are the big guys that you think people should be following and, and seeing their work? Um, well, there's always uh, going to be new people coming up, and there's always going to be those people that are well entrenched. Um, I, I get to be able to call a lot of really big names in the industry really great and close friends. So people like Alan Aragon, Eric Helms, James Krieger, Brad Schoenfeld, Dan John, Gray Cook, Pavel Satsulin, Chad Waterbury, Tony Gentlecore, Eric Cressy. Um, the list could go on forever. A lot of it just comes down to what do you actually want to learn about. I mean, everyone's going to have very different takes on things. You want to learn more about getting jack swole and fast? Joe DeFranco is awesome. Smitty Diesel, James Smith, he's in there too. Um, you want to learn about training celebrities. Ben Bruno is an amazing example on how to get women to lift heavy but not look bulky in the classic sense. You want to learn about powerlifting? Chad Wesley Smith, uh, Juggernaut Training Systems, um, Mark Bell. Uh, you want to learn about athletic performance? Eric Cressy. Mike uh, Robertson, you want to learn about shoulder health, Mike Reinhold. Um, there's so many different people out there that it's great to be able to call all those people friends, but also to be able to say, I can pick their brain at a drop of a hat. And these are also people who, they're not stingy with their ability to help other people. I mean, it's something where anytime I've had a problem, if I've reached out to people, they might not get back to me right away, but they always get back with either really great advice or really detailed advice. So part of it is just understanding that free content is free, but then Sometimes you need to be able to dig a little bit deeper, and that's where paid content comes in. That's where shadowing people comes in. That's where you know getting to know what the problem is and building onto it can become really valuable. In London, Alex, Car Car I can't say his name. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we were going to challenge you to say his name because we, we have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comments on something in our Facebook group, we just go. Al Alex, Alex, you know Alex. We just go Alex K. He said something, and yeah, it's like. When there's the Z, the S, the C, and the K, that's a nope. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy to learn from as well because he's a physical therapist and strength coach who can deadlift over 600 pounds. So, you know, he doesn't just live in the physio world. He's a strength guy too. So people like him, Neil Meekings, um, uh, a whole bunch of others in and around the London area are fantastic people to get to know. People in third space, uh, if we want to get really deep down that rabbit hole of DNS kind of training, uh, Luke uh, Worthington would be a great example. Luke Summers knows how to get people moving around and feeling better too. So uh, everybody has benefits. It's just a matter of figuring out who you want to work with and who you're going for. Yeah, Alex certainly has provided us with some um, useful tips. Like, because we get questions sometimes, and then we talk about you know the physio side of it, and, and then you know we'll publish the episode, and he'll chime in, and he'll give his view. And he's like you say, that, that his his view of it is 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 great because. We're very much the opinion that the best videos we've found we've worked with in the past have always been those that lift themselves and don't shy away from getting people strong because they know that that's going to help them. So he's uh, 
He's big on that. But, but it's also knowing our boundaries. I'm a biomechanist. You're essentially a nutritionist. So that's where we 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 realize we're going to refer out for that kind of thing. As one of the one of the big things that I teach a lot is refer out when you don't know. They're going to thank you yep. a hell of a lot later. So that's that's the point. That's why you said all those people are specialists in those areas. The chances are they've got really specialists by going through and they refer out when they don't know because they're like, I don't know about that. I'm, I quite happily drop people into Dan about nutrition. I'm like, all right, calories. No, I'm out. I'm out. See you later. Go talk to him. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm done. So, yeah. I mean, the easiest thing I could do is refer somebody out for something like manual therapy. Like the tools that I have available for me for manual therapy would be things like foam roller, lacrosse ball, and maybe a stick. Whereas if I get somebody in with a qualified manual therapist who can do something like MRT, dry needling, or any other kind of voodoo or witchcraft that they're able to do that is way more of a change in tissue uh, quality and health and extensibility than I would be able to do in an, an hour of foam rolling, why would I not want to do that? If I can get clients faster results by referring them out versus me fumbling around with things, I still win at the end of the day. Yeah, that's for sure. Perfect. Cool. I think we'll we'll, we'll start to wrap up there, mate. Because uh, I think the last thing we need to do is where where do people find you if uh, if they're not following you already on social media? Not I don't mean personally. They don't go rock up in Alberta and just kind of say hello. Um, <laughs> obviously, you're probably more than welcome to do that. But um, where do people find you? Uh, well, I'm kind of a big deal on the internet these days. <laughs> I've got a website, deansomerset.com. Somerset spelled like uh, the English county, not like two ones or anything like that. Yeah. Um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all that kind of stuff is out there. So I'm all over the place. Absolutely. And uh, when we post out on our respective Instagrams and then on Facebook, yeah, we'll tag the hell out of Dean as much as possible. Um, when this comes out, um, you already listened to it when you're doing that, so yeah, yeah, I like it all the time. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on and yeah. sharing your pearls of wisdom. It was, um, it was a pleasure. My absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on and being awesome hosts, and hopefully you guys keep crushing it over there in Blighty. Hopefully. We'll, uh, we're just winging it. <laughs> we're winging just winging every it. week. Um, we're almost at 100 episodes. We're all right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you next week.